Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Hope you're all very well. Uh, very happy to have back with me once again, Sports Pro Deputy Editor Sam Cart. Hello, Owen. How are you doing? Not too bad, Sam. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Not much has changed since we last spoke, although I think this might be my third pod in a row, which I believe is a record for me. So, yeah, delighted to be back. Well, let's see if we can keep that streak going. Uh, certainly not a third pod in a row, possibly a first pod ever for our guest the Director of Eurasian Sport at the M. Leon Business School, Professor Simon Chadwick. Hi, Simon. Hi. It's not, it's not my podcast debut. I've made podcasts before, but for Sports Pro, definitely this is my debut. So I'm hoping for a scoring first appearance. Well, let's hope so. We're going to be talking about um, the financial challenges to sport in the post-COVID-19 era, um, looking at the distribution of wealth and resources and uh, some of the structures and how they might be affected by all the disruption to come. We're also going to be hearing a little bit later on from Michael Yormark, who's the president of Rock Nation Sports, uh, about representing Sia Kalise, the Rugby World Cup winning captain of South Africa. He spoke to Steve Impey a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we'll be listening in to their chat in part two. And also, just another reminder, if you haven't been checking out the Sports Pro Insider series, uh, we have an event on As We're Speaking, our second event on OTT and broadcast technology. We've got lots more to come over the next couple of months and, of course, uh, free on-demand access to all the events that we have had so far. Um, so head to sportsproinsiderseries.com to register for that. Right. Simon, what have we learned about the financial structures supporting the sports industry since we stopped having any money moving through the sports industry um, back in March or so? Uh, possibly not very much. Um, I, th- I, th- I think many of us already knew the financial situation facing sports at all levels and, and different types of sports organisation as well. but. Obviously, we, we, we tend in sport to get locked into this uh, you know, kind of Saturday to Saturday cycle where you know, the game on Saturday finishes and then we've got to start thinking about the cycle uh, up to next Saturday's game uh, and whether you're selling tickets to a match or you're you know, selling perimeter advertising or you know, you're, a, you're an athlete, a player. Um, we're, we're all locked into these cycles. And, and so... We never really get the opportunity, I think, many of us to to really step back and to think about in any in any kind of deep and meaningful way uh, what the financial challenges are, uh, and and I think even we're, we're even less able to, to to take time out and to stand back and to think about even though there are issues and problems, um, how how do we deal with them, and and so. I'm being a little bit flippant when I say we haven't learned anything. I mean, clearly we have learned something, and and what we've learned is that we need to think about these kinds of things. So, for sports organisations, for instance, that sell um, tickets, so in other words, ticket revenues are, are are their lifeblood. This is what sustains them. 
what we now know is is that without that money, uh, they're in, in an incredible amount of difficulty. Um, what we also know is is that if there is no televised coverage of sports, that creates all kinds of of, of legal issues and, and rights issues that, again, we probably knew before, but we never really thought about it. Many people have spoken, I think, from from you know, when I, I sit and listen, have spoken about uh, exposure to risk um, and, and some of the vulnerabilities around the models that have been adopted uh, by, by sports organisations. But I think the other thing that, that strikes me alongside that, this, and this is a very, a very personal uh, observation from me, is, is probably what we've also learned, is, is just how bereft of creativity, creativity and innovation um, many sports organisations are. Now, I'm not, not levelling that accusation at, at, at everyone. Uh, and, and, I, and again, I know that, that those organisations that are not particularly innovative and creative sometimes they, they simply don't have the time or the resources to be able to, to to think about such issues but out of out of covid19 or out of the pandemic uh, period I, I I see real opportunities to be to be creative um, to take advantage of opportunities to 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 reformulate strategy to pro- propel you out of this uh, this period but I suspect that that you know, there are not too many people like me who are thinking about these things. Uh, and again, I, I don't present myself as some kind of great visionary. I just think that that organizations have got other things to worry about, like how they're going to pay, pay people and how are they, they're going to make sure that they don't sack people. So I, I, in summary, what I'm saying is, you know, in one sense, we haven't really learned very much. We kind of knew these things already. Um but it is a little bit like you know we're now in a when we've been living in an oh shit moment that hey we do now realize and and we've got to do something about this and for me the industry as a whole has to move forward from here you know having taken this on the chin but really setting about changing things and 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 ensuring that there is a there are, that are, there are tangible differences in the future between you know, what might happen, let's say, you know, at the start of winter or at the start of next year or the middle of next year compared to what we've just been through. We did have a moment at the very start of the crisis, and obviously we're, we're coming back into having some, some competitions are already back up and running. Others are looking at what's possible for the rest of 2020 and, and going into 21. But we did have a moment where it felt as though big things were possible basically to deal with this crisis whether that was you know moving very big events and doing that in coordination with other rights holders or you know um, we've seen a few cases of very few cases but a few cases of broadcasters being um, more accommodating with their payment schedules and you know we we had talk from FIFA about solidarity funds and all this kind of thing is the appetite there for for that kind of big thinking outside of a real crunch moment because obviously there was nothing that could be done basically we couldn't there was no possibility of any sport and there was no possibility of any income so you kind of had to do something in that moment but is there now coming out of it is there going to be the same impetus to to see things happen i I think during those uh during those early days and, and let's be brutally honest about this you know most of us hadn't got a clue what was happening we we didn't know how long the 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 lockdown would be. We didn't know how long the the, the pandemic would would be around. We didn't know who's going to fall ill. 
you know, we didn't know whether the Olympics would take place. We didn't know when football would start. And, and so we've got to be fair to each other. We, we faced unprecedented, an imp- unprecedented situation. And most of us did the best that we could. And I think that's, you know, that's a really important thing to say. Most of us um, did the best that we could. Was it good enough? Was it appropriate? Was it effectiveness? I think obviously that needs to form part of the um, of the review of this period that presumably many more organisations uh, uh, engage in. Um, but as I say, otherwise, I, I think we just got to be fair with each other. My my sense during those uh, those early days, in addition to this, is that it was almost as though we had to tell each other. And this was this was wasn't just a sport moment. It, it, I think it was a it was a, hu- a humankind moment. We had to tell each other that everything would be okay. And and so some of the noises that we we obviously saw coming out of uh, sport in general was was it was very much about you know don't worry it'll be okay it will be back uh, normality will return etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But in truth, you know, we we didn't have the foresight. We didn't have the information. Um, I guess some of us may not have had the courage to say, well, actually, this is really serious. It's going to fundamentally change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so they were unusual times. But what I, what I found, again, personally, what I found very interesting about these early days was, was that um, people, were, people, back in the old days, back in the old days, people used to talk about the reset moments. Does anyone remember the reset moment where we used to gather around Zoom and talk about the reset moment? You know, when I was back when I was a boy, and 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 uh, the, that reset moment, nobody really talks about that reset moment anymore um, because it's clearly not going to happen. And 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 what I found particularly interesting about that 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 reset moment discussion is is that nobody talked about reset to what, and 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 there was no discussion either of who's going to do the resetting. And and so throughout April, you know, it was almost as though miraculously we were going to return to 1956 when May started, uh, and 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 it just never happened. And and I I think you're, what's interesting is is your observations about you know, there there have been no kind of big grand developments. Um, I think is an interesting one because we're still in this situation even now where 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 organizations are making positive noises and and we're still hearing you know fifa and and the ioc and and others making very positive upbeat noises about what might happen in the future but it is almost as though we 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 kind of haven't moved on from when the pandemic first hit but what i do sense is 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 there are just some small examples of, of of hinting at what what may be to come and there are two that 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 um stick in my mind firstly in terms of well actually i guess three there are three that stick in my mind the first one is around fandom and and as we've seen there have been some really uh interesting approaches to fans raising from ranging from zoom walls through to cardboard cutouts and south korean sex dolls um, through, you know, obviously through to driving and, and these kinds of things. And, and, and so I think what, what we have seen is there is some evidence of creativity. There is some evidence of innovation. There is some evidence of lateral thinking. There is some evidence of a survival instinct in, in the industry that has led to these developments emerging. So I, I think they're, they're noteworthy and notable. And there is something of a debate around, I think, the nature of consumption and, and the future of consum- consumption, the future 
ways in which fans consume their sport. That that's one of them. The second thing that that I think is 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 notable, and and, and again going back to April, back in the old old days. When by now everyone was supposed to be console gaming, every single person in the world will have forgotten about their football team. We'll all be console gaming, um, and and obviously that hasn't happened. But I think some of the interesting things around, for example, Formula E and some of the, some of the things in Formula One, where where you know, console gamers have, have competed against Formula One drivers, these kinds of developments. Again, I, I think in terms of interactivity and in, and in terms of co-creation. Because we've we've lived for a while now in in the environment of co-creating sport, uh, I think those developments are really really interesting. But but the other one, the third one that's caught my attention is City Football Group buying Lommel in Belgium. And uh, as as you may already know, I, I know some of your listeners may know, I've, I've got a kind of mild obsession with City Football Group because actually not a mild obsession; it's a complete obsession with City Football Group. Um, because not I'm not that I'm a Manchester City fan. It's just that, that I think the way in which the group has has been going about its business over the last five years tells us a great deal about um, what's happening in 21st century sport. And if you look at what CFG did with the acquisition of Lommel, is is in the midst of a pandemic when everybody else is panicking, they went out and sealed a deal for another franchise. And and I just thought that kind of steadfastness and retaining this you know retaining a focus on their strategic development and you know their, their kind of path of strategic development really for me tells me something about what's going to happen post pandemic and I, and I guess what I'm doing I'm alluding to your question which is um, I, I think in some cases you know, in, in many cases the rich will get rich richer and, and the poor will get poorer the strong will survive and, and some of the weak will fall by the wayside. And, and when I go back to, to April and, 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 and we were talking about the reset moment, I remember at the time I tweeted about it. I said, hey, you know, survival of the fittest, you'll get you know, rich and powerful, become, become even more rich and powerful. And the, the poor and weak will become even poorer and weaker. And, and I think just in that little, little development, city, the city football group and Lommel, you know, that that is a glimpse of 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 where the future will be, and 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 I think since then, obviously, we've seen Saudi Arabia buying into Live Nation. We've seen several other football club acquisitions, and for me, this kind of globally integrated network of sports properties is 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 the post-pandemic model that most people probably didn't want to see, but it almost seems to me to have been a an, an inevitability. Yeah, I mean, I think just going on what Simon said there, but. Um, at the start of this, there was just kind of that sense of everyone being together. I think the moment for me, which was quite interesting, was you had organisations previously at ends with each other just kind of coming together in a way. So uh, I know Simon already mentioned FIFA. So you had Gianni Infantino and uh, Sheffrin kind of collaborating and Infantino moving his much talked about um, revamped Club World Cup so that the so that the uh, uh, so that Euro twenty twenty could take place in that sort of window. Um, so there was kind of a sense of sport coming together at that point, and you did wonder whether some of the imbalance that we've seen might, you know, end up being addressed, and you know whether because that imbalance had been exposed because of this, it might be something that either during this or post pandemic might be sort of rectified. Um, but as, as Simon said there, you know, I don't, I think the the signs now that there is that it won't be. Um, I think, I think it's also important to say that while this has perhaps highlighted some of those inequalities and some of the flaws in 
in sports financial model. It's no different from any other business that would struggle to survive when you know carved from its main revenue streams, you know, TV or its sponsorship match day. Um, it just so happens that sport does operate very much in this in the public eye, and in most cases, the millions of wages that teams now pay their athletes are pretty much entirely dependent on that income not being abruptly cut off in the way that it has. So, you know, for the time being, a lot of the talk has been about bailouts, pay cuts, rescue packages, relief funds. I think those are sort of all the buzzwords that have been doing the rounds in recent weeks. But those are ultimately short-term fixes for the time being that are going to resolve cash flow issues until those main sources of income are back up and running again. I think what's going to be interesting is after that, because, you know, what this should be really is a wake-up call for a lot of sports, you know, that their model isn't sustainable, which is why which is why I think there has been a lot of talk about this period being an opportunity for some sports which have been walking a bit of a financial plank in recent years. It should be seen as kind of an opportunity for financial reform and to rethink how they do things. Obviously, I think this is going to be more pertinent further down the food chain, but um, there's no real point pretending that this is, that, you know, the elite won't survive from this. I think it's that's something that's made me laugh when they talk about the Premier League coming back and kind of the impact on those clubs that have billionaire backers from, you know, Abu Dhabi, the Glazers, Stan Kroenke, Arsenal, Roman Abramovich. You know, they're not the ones who are facing an existential threat because of this. Um, and then if anything, you wonder if they're going to be looking to secure an even greater slice of the pie on the back of it. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what it's what this period has laid bare for me is just that imbalance that exists in sport. You know, the gaps that... <laughs> The gap that was there maybe had a chance to narrow, but the likelihood is that it's only going to get wider. Well, this is the thing is there's a, you know, I suppose there's a moment where you can look at, okay, well, if we were to to reset or to to rebuild, um, where would we address the structural weaknesses that exist in our system? And I think that, you know, to your point, Sam, obviously if if the money runs out in the Premier League, or if there is a short shortage of cash in the Premier League, it's actually going to be felt further down the pyramid. And whether that's in you know um, the kind of payments that, that filter through community projects or transfers or or what have you, but you know we we did get a sense of how fragile that pyramid is uh, in those early weeks. But that requires you know to in order to come up with a solution to that, it requires a huge amount of collective will and lots of stakeholders pulling together um is what we're seeing simon just that we might get changed but a little bit more insidiously where you know money flows a bit more like water um and it's going to find the path of least resistance to something that works a little bit better for the market and that is going to be through these kind of top-down investments and and certain certain properties breaking away or, or reshaping things in in their own interests yeah, I, I, one of the things that, that I didn't mention earlier, which I think is really pertinent um, to, to, to the discussion you've just had, is, is who governs sport. And, and again, we, this, is a, this is a conversation that, that, that um, many people have had over years. Uh, and, and if I'm correct in, in remembering, even parliamentary select committees in Britain have talked about who governs sport. I think even even at one at one stage, the European Union was 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 you know had embroiled itself in, in in a debate about the governance of sport, and and yet, you know, in many ways, um, certainly sport in the West, in 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 uh, in in Europe and North America, is is you know, operates on very laissez faire principles, 
Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is essentially you have a, you have a competition, you have a league, you have a, a, a particular sport and it, and it has a governing body and, and, um, that's, that's, that's the way it functions. Uh, what we don't see necessarily is, is, you know, as I say, certainly in the West, uh, in, in general is government intervention. So sport makes its own decisions. It decides, you know, who, who are the fit and proper people, and and it decides where the where franchises should be, and you know, who should invest in what. And what 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 I think the, the the pandemic has exposed are some of the structural deficiencies within the global sports governance system. And you know, I, I, I got to say this, you know, we might as well talk about it now rather than later. Is Saudi Arabia and Newcastle United? Which, uh, which has been the bane of my life for the last uh, three or four months. But, hey, here's Premier League team. Premier League has got its uh, owners and directors test. Oh, hold on a minute. Uh, this country is actually quite difficult to deal with because all kinds of uh, accusations are being made against it and, and it seems as though it's stealing content from another country and it just so happens that and and it just so happens that that content is from a, an existing Premier League partner and it's like oh my god that's a big surprise well you know it's not a big surprise this was happening it was always happening but I think what's happened with the Saudi Arabia Newcastle United case is it's brought such, such issues into the spotlight but but set them in the context of COVID-19 because I think similar such issues um, have have been raised by COVID nineteen as well, and in, in terms of you know when you when you've got governing bodies saying, well, yeah, we'll, we've got bailouts, and you know we're, we're going to have some kind of solidarity pool, or you know, we'll we'll try and help the weaker members of our group, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In reality, you know, when push comes to shove, they're they're probably not going to do that, or they're going to find it very difficult to do that, which suggests that somebody or some something else needs to govern. And 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 I, where I'm heading with all of this is is that you know, it's the governing bodies that govern in the West, whereas in in places like Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and China and you know, Malaysia, it's the governments that govern, and and so you've got this juxtaposition of you know, some fairly aggressive East Eastern governments or Asian governments, aggressive in the sense that that prepared, prepared to support, prepared to spend, prepared to legislate in a way that we don't necessarily see in the West. And, and as I say, personified by or embodied within the, the, the Saudi Arabia, Newcastle United case. And so as we as we come out of the, the period of the pandemic, you know, we, we can all sit around and say, yeah, wouldn't it be really nice if all the, bi- all, the big, uh, all the big teams, all the big leagues, all the big broadcasters looked after all the little ones and, and everyone says, yeah, yeah, you know, with, with our kind of the feel good factor, because there is a kind of feel good thing. We all feel communal and together and warm and fuzzy because we're all sitting at this pandemic together. But then when when the green light goes for, for the pandemic to end, you actually do get a sense that it's going to be everyone for themselves. And, and, and you know, the strong will get stronger, the rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer and so forth. And, and, and so then that's when... You know, we've got it. We already now we have to be thinking about governance. We have to be thinking about policy. We have to be thinking about strategy. And I guess underpinning those things, we've got to decide what we think about sport. You know, are, are we are we happy for City Football Group and Red Bull to you know, have these huge transnational collaborative networks of franchise clubs? Now I'm I'm not going to judge that. You know, there might be lots of people who put their hands up and say, "Yeah, that's a great thing. That's what we want." Well, that's fine. That's fine. 
there might also be quite a lot of people out there saying, no, 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 this is not the future of sport. In which case, the, that raises the issue of governance. So what are we going to do about it and who's going to do it? And, and I think, you know, those really kind of fundamental issues which need to be discussed haven't necessarily been discussed so far because obviously we've been talking about other things. We've been talking about furloughing and we've been talking about getting through the next month and making sure that you know people don't lose their jobs. And 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 I just feel that you know when we look back in history, we'll we'll say, you know what, we that was a real missed opportunity. Yeah, we know we we know we had to look after people during that time, but we missed the opportunity to fundamentally address some of the issues that sport faces. So are we going to see out of this a uh, more of a drift between what a governing body or a government is responsible for in sport and what is out there as the kind of pure profit motive driven enterprise um, that might be a Premier League or something above a Premier League, you know, that might be something a little bit more in line with an American sports model where, you know, there is some connection with, with grassroots and with community, but actually there's quite often another body that that's responsible for that in the education system or um or what have you what where where is this going is there is this just going to be kind of slightly modified or are we going to and and kind of um hum back into life as it was or are we going to see two separate ideas of of what sport exists for um purely because of the financial structures and, and what they can actually sustain I'm I'm not advocating for anything other than our community and 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 if you would prefer the word industry so our industry our community our stakeholders need to decide that that's that's the only thing that I advocate for because um you know I I, I a lot of people have said a lot of things not just over the last 2 or 3 months but over the last 2 or 3 years over the, over the last 2 decades about how sport should be and yet we've never actually found a way to to do anything about that. And you know, I go back to the Saudi Arabia Newcastle United case. We've all talked about in the past the you know, fit and proper person test and the owners and directors test. You know, should this really be happening? And anyone can buy a football club. And, and yet it's still happening. It's still happening even now. And, and so we've got to be looking at mechanisms where there is a more of a multi-stakeholder approach to the governance, the organisation, the management of sport, and and linked to that, you know, there are kind of some kind of good, good old fashioned bread and butter governance principles like transparency and openness to know exactly what is going on. Now, beyond that, where we where we go from that is is if the stakeholders decide that what we want to do is we want to run sport as like a cottage industry, you know, something that harks back to the nineteen sixties, then fine. We can at least say you know, we agree. There was some consensus. We agreed on that. Um, otherwise, if 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 we've got you know this kind of hyper commercialized post pandemic period, where every sport is part of a, a, a transnational franchise network, you know, again, fine. If that's what we want, fine. At least we've talked about it. But at the moment, what I what I see is is and and the the pandemic has exacerbated this. Is is this is this free for all of competing interests, uh, and 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 
you know, nobody's happy. You know, nobody, I guess, apart from the people who are making money, making money, but nobody's happy. You know, the fans are not happy necessarily. The broadcast, you know, the, the 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 broadcasters want the fans to understand the pressures that they face. The fans want the sponsors to understand the pressures that they face. The sponsors want the governing bodies to understand the pressures that they face. And yet we've we've not really got a mechanism in sport or or, or any mechanism mechanisms in sport that enable. Um, such divergent stakeholder views to all be brought together in one place. Now, as I say, I'm not advocating for a particular approach, but you know, I, I, I've always been disappointed, for instance, by the European Union's stance on sport, which I think, given that Europe is the home to um, some of the most historic and most valuable sporting properties in the world, uh, the European Union has, has basically had zero debate, zero policy, zero strategy, zero debate about you know what about the future of the Tour de France? What about the future of Le Mans Twenty Four Hours? You know what about the future of, of Grand Slam tennis uh, tournaments in, in in Europe? You know there's been no debate, no discussion, and what we're now beginning to see, of course, is is overseas investors and and stories still s- uh, swirl around. You know, do the Chinese want to buy the, the Tour de France, for example? And it would seem to me that that as we begin to move towards moving out of this, at least this first wave of the pandemic, you know, such matters would would um, or should be discussed, and organisations like the European Union should be leading. And I, and I, that that that's what, going back to your very first question of the day: what have we learned? Leadership. We we need real leadership, and and I think the there is a dearth of truly convincing. Um, charismatic leadership in sport. You know, pe- pe- people who can who can who can lead these stakeholders that I've talked about through a period of dramatic change to a place where we're actually happy. You know, so that fans are happy, sponsors are happy, broadcasters are happy, teams are happy, competitions are happy, governing bodies are happy, and yet we don't we don't seem to have either the mechanisms or the leaders to be able to do that. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. It's funny that Simon talks about leadership there because I think after this feels like leadership or, you know, people at the top, it's going to become even more fragmented in a way as, you know, if you do get a situation where you have more external investors coming into sport. So, for example, if you look at um, if you look at private equity after this and you see the way that CVC has already invested in rugby and you talk about and you've already seen reports about CVC being in talks with Serie A as well, um, you know, if you're running on external investors, there's not going to be that much clear thought. You're going to have people with different ideas. Um, you have people with different ideas, conflicting interests. Um, I think in the, I think in some cases, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think in the case of rugby, CVC's investment could actually reinvigorate it in a way. I think some of the ideas that were being floated before the pandemic, I think they were published in the Financial Times, actually sounded quite good for a sport that had perhaps been stuck in its ways for a while and where, you know, there are some unions that tend to profit a lot more than others. In terms of that idea, you know, on that on that topic of leadership, I don't really get the impression that after this, uh, that situation is going to improve in any way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just to be clear, I, I'm I'm not a luddite. I'm not resistant to change. Not not am I, nor am I uh, you know nor am I advocating for sport as a cottage industry, or, or for that matter, nor am I advocating for sport as a as some kind of you know. 22nd century hyper commercialized vehicle for you know vicious capitalists everywhere i'm 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 not advocating for anything as such 
it's it's I guess what I'm trying to say is 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 this period still and and that's the, I guess the, that's a crucial word still this period still provides us with an opportunity to talk more deeply and fundamentally about what's been happening over the last two decades and where we where we want to go from here um you know i i'm 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 not so idealistic to uh to suggest that you know I, I kind of if we all sit in a circle and hold hands and have a nice conversation the world's going to be a better place uh, in in 2021 um but i just think that that if we could find some time and some space and just get clear of what's going to happen next when we get to start matches furloughing all those other things actually find a, find some time and space to talk about the fundamental issues and about the kind of sport that we want and how sport might be in the future uh, I, I, I just think that will that will raise the level of conversation. It will raise the level of debate. It will make some of the issues more obvious. And one would hope that there would then be mechanisms and institutions that might be able to take forward some of the outcomes of such a debate. Now, as I say, I've mentioned the European Union. I, I don't anticipate that the likes of the European Union, or for that matter, the British government, is going to step step up any time soon and say, okay, Here's a coherent industrial policy for sport, and 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 that's something else that you know I, I really want to emphasize. You know, I'm a big advocate of of uh, governments and countries, policymakers, decision makers having an industrial policy policy for sport. You go, you go to the Gulf region, you go to Qatar, you go to Abu Dhabi, you you, you go to China. They do have a very, um, they do have well well crafted, coherent industrial strategies for sport. In places like Britain and Western Europe, we don't. And, and and I think that that has been exposed by the pandemic. And as I say, I just think at this point in time, we now have the opportunity to discuss such matters. I'm not advocating. If, 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 if the industry decides, hey, Simon, you're talking rubbish, we don't need government policy, we don't need a government industrial strategy for sport, not the European Union, not in Britain, not, not anywhere, that's fine. Okay, at least we've talked about it. But I, but I, I just don't think that Certainly in Europe, we're taking the issue seriously enough, even though we've had the opportunity over the last three months to do exactly that. Yeah. And I mean, it strikes me that if you look at what's to come for sport, we've been talking for a few years about sport as a product not being inclusive enough and um, perhaps, you know, and, you know, there needing to be more of a platform given to women's sport, for example. We're having a very serious conversation probably a little too late about uh sport as in terms of its governance and and how representative it is of people ultimately money is not going to care about that and i think that's going to be the big challenge is you know there are also commercial commercial obstacles in the way in terms of as you mentioned earlier simon in terms of consumption and how that's changing you know i guess there has to be someone who is responsible for addressing those challenges and it can't just be what works financially yeah, and 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 I get that. I I suppose that's that's essentially uh, the question that I'm I'm asking is who's at the wheel. So as we not only tried getting through the last three months, you know, as we've tried to get through the last decade, the last two decades, as we try to move into the future, who's at the wheel? You know, are we happy with the driver? Um, and and uh, we 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 we're not answering those questions. Um, and you know, maybe we don't even. I, there's something ideological about all of this in the sense that um, do we need do we actually need someone at the wheel 
well, I think if you were to go to if you were to go to China, you were you were to you were to go to Saudi Arabia, you were to sit in the uh, the General Sports Authority in Riyadh, and 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 pose the question: Who's who's at the wheel, and do we need uh, someone at the wheel? You know, the response would be too right. We need someone at the wheel. Absolutely, we need someone someone at the wheel. So if you've then got the the likes of public investment fund and 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 the Saudi Arabians investing into, for example, a Premier League football team, where the Saudi Arabian government is is saying too right there's someone at the wheel and we know why we're at the wheel as well we know where we're driving we know we know where we're going we know what we're trying to do but then that is juxtaposed against the british government who is you know effectively saying well you know there's nobody really at the wheel of british sport we just let it happen we've got a very laissez-faire approach to this now again you know, I'm, I'm i'm not advocating advocating for an interventionist or non-interventionist ideology at all because both have consequences but we need to talk about those consequences. So we're back to the same issue that I was uh, discussing before. There are consequences, and and so you know, when when you when you have this head-on clash of ideology, you know, a Premier League football team in England potentially being bought by uh, a Middle Eastern state that has some fairly uh, fractious things hanging over it. You know, what what's the outcome? What's the solution to this? And we can see that what should have what should have uh, taken. You know, a matter of weeks to get through the owners and directors test. And what are we now in like the third or the fourth month of this? And that's because some of the issues raised by this case are so profound. And yet there is nothing in, 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 um, in policy and strategy in this country, at least, that enables us to de- that enables sport to deal with this in a convincing way. And, and so hence, you know, this question of you know, who's at the wheel? Do we need someone at the wheel? If there is someone at the wheel, where are we going with all of this? I think these are really, really important questions. I know we've spoken a lot about the rich getting richer, but so I was just interested to know, like, what would you kind of recommend for the sort of small sports or uh, smaller sports on the back of this? Because, I mean, as we've touched upon, you know, on the back of this, the demand for the Premier League has been to disappear. The premium sports rights that were premium before this, they're still going to be in demand and broadcasters are going to stay you'd assume they're still going to spend what they can spend to acquire those. So is the onus now on those smaller sports, say, I don't know, your rugby leagues, maybe even women's sport, to think more creatively and, you know, to realise that they can't continue living outside of their own means because they're not going to be able to sustain that? Is it? Is this, is there still an opportunity here for them to do things a little bit differently? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think from my perspective, what I would say uh, is, is that, um, you know, there's something about education and development in all of this, because I, I genuinely do believe that um, that smaller businesses, smaller organisations that can be lean and agile and creative and innovative can not only survive, but actually prosper. Um, just to give you an example, I, I bought some face coverings. Uh, and, and the reason I bought my face, the, my face coverings from this particular business is, is that uh, for most of the time recently, I've been getting my uh, my photo books and photographs developed there, and they sent me a flyer saying we're uh, we're printing up face coverings now. And I thought, right, okay. So you've gone from photographs and digital images and um, creating pho- photography books through to face coverings. And I thought, you know what, brilliant. That's just the kind of ingenuity, innovativeness, creativity, flexibility, agility, leanness that is there. And 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 and. There will be, there are obviously certain people out there in the world already who possess the skills, they possess the competence, they possess the confidence, they have the confidence to to respond in the ways that, that, that they need to respond in. But I think for others, you know, we, we, we again as an educationist, just to reiterate this, you know, I think 
people like me have a responsibility to the industry to be creating programs, to be creating learning opportunities that enable smaller organizations within the industry to to think in a different way and to operate in a different way and to be more flexible, to be uh, to be leaner. To, to think more creatively about what they do. I, I guess I, you know, I, I, a, a strong part of what I've been saying today is I'm not advocating for anyone. And, and, and you know, I, 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 I do think that the rich should help the poor. I do believe that there should be an element of redistribution you know, in society generally and also in sport. But at the same time, I think smaller sports, smaller sport organisations, you can't assume, they can't assume that uh, they can be reliant on handouts for the you know for the next year or the next two years the next five years and, you know, so I think there is an element of of personal responsibility in all of this and 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 thinking about changing business models changing the ways of operating um, thinking more uh, thinking more strategically being as I say creative innovative leaner more agile and and rather than pro- just providing financial support to help. And 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 um, encourage such organisations. And you know, as you say, things like education, development, training, uh, these are also important for the industry as well. Okay, lots to chew over, and I'm sure we will return to the subject again and again over the weeks and the months, and, and no doubt the the years ahead. But um, we'll put a a lid on it for now. Um, we're going to be hearing after the break from Michael Yormark, the president of Rock Nation Sports. Uh, about representing World Cup winning uh, South Africa rugby captain Sia Kalise. Steve Impey, our senior reporter, spoke to him a couple of weeks ago um, to talk about purpose and uh, and, and the challenge of, of breaking a, a unique athlete out of a sport that, that has its borders and some of the other aspects of the Sia Kalise story uh, that he finds compelling and hopes to share with a wider audience. So that is coming up just after this. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro podcast, we're listening to. I, I, I wanted to start, um, uh, I, I appreciate we're, we're in a, a difficult climate at the moment and and I, I suppose at this time it's sort of it with, with the death of, of live sport it has sort of highlighted the athlete's ability to adapt and refocus his or her brand and so so before we proceed I just wanted to get your thoughts on how you've adapted at this time and and um what, what how it's it, it, it impacted your strategy working with some of your clients at, at, at this moment you know listen it's been a challenging time for all of us but you know, we have to be creative and innovative and our work doesn't stop um, when, when it comes to our, our clients, our athletes, uh, our celebrities, our rock nation. I think this time has also created opportunity for us, right? The opportunity to refocus on the goals and objectives of our clients and to really continue to build their brands through community and through doing good and giving back during this very challenging time. And there's so many incredible examples that we can discuss that really reinforce the fact that there truly is no better way to build somebody's brand, to enhance 
an athlete's visibility or exposure than through community and giving and just being authentic to -hmm. who they are. And that's what we've really focused on. And, you know, Kelly has worked extraordinarily hard on developing um, unique and different and new strategies for all of our clients. But that's what we're following right now. We, we are, we're focused on different things. We're not focused on, on building the brands of our clients through commercial partnerships. We're focused on building the brands of our clients, again, through community, through the good work that they've done. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Sia Khaleesi, but mm-hmm. he is absolutely a shining example of how you can continue to build your visibility and your exposure, and most importantly, connect with your community through doing good. Yes, you, you mentioned Sia there, and I, I mean, the, the, the story behind his ascension to the, the top of the of world rugby union is is is, is um quite a pertinent one and and, and uh, an interesting tale and 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 i suppose the fact that you have such a diverse roster of sports talent including european soccer and major league stars in north america um sia khaleesi does stand out in the in the sense that as i understand he's your first uh, venture into rugby union and i wanted to ask what what was attractive about working with sia and 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 what why that's um why why you've moved in, in, in into that sport? But let me first say that our signing of Sia Khaleesi had nothing to do with him being a rugby star. It had had all to do with who Sia Khaleesi is as a man, as a leader, as a father, as a husband, and what he stands for. When you think about Sia Khaleesi, you think about unity. You think about hope. You think about togetherness. He is one of the most inspirational and motivational individuals I've ever met. And after learning about his story during and after the World Cup, and also understanding what his personal and what his brand goals and objectives are, it was a natural opportunity for Rock Nation to sign him and to help him expand his platform globally. Because the good work that he's doing is not just impacting South Africa and the entire continent. Mm -hmm. It's actually having an impact in the entire world. His foundation, as an example, has been profiled three times in the last 45 days in the the New York Times. People are noticing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And he's developed this iconic status. But again, not just in South Africa, it's around the world. And... That's why we signed Sia Khaleesi. Again, it had nothing to do with rugby. It had all to do with who Sia Khaleesi is as an individual. I mean, you mentioned his foundation now. I just wonder if you can you can touch on the on that a little bit more and 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 what 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 that entails. Also, some of the projects that you have worked on, because I understand there's been some crossover with other sports, including tennis in South Africa, and what it takes to start building a brand, especially one that's quite localized to begin with, but as you say, is, is, is now a, a global force. So to your point, I mean, it's, it's been a busy time, even during this, this lockdown and, and COVID-19 for Sia Khaleesi. Uh, the foundation um, really became uh, active uh, in, in South Africa about four months ago. And during the pandemic, uh, its goals and objectives short-term changed a little bit to feeding those in need. And mm-hmm. so over the last 90 days, Sia Khaleesi, his wife, Rachel, and their entire team 
They've been out in the South African community um, feeding individuals in the townships, making sure that they have the, the supplies to get through this very, very challenging time. Um, I believe as of this moment, the foundation has fed over 25,000 families during the last uh, 90 days, which is just uh, incredible work. So, you know, obviously the foundation has been very, very active. We've also been working on, you know, other projects. Um, uh, his life documentary is something that we're moving forward and we're really, really excited about that project because we think it's going to be a, a source of inspiration and motivation for anyone that watches it in South Africa and around the world. Um, we've just finalized a, a global book deal uh, for Sia Khaleesi with a global publisher. And we're really excited about uh, that opportunity. And we've also uh, finalized uh, three new commercial partnerships um, over the last 60 days. And we have two or three more agreements that will be finalized within the next two weeks. So not only are we working on big projects, not only is Sia and his wife and his family very active with the Khaleesi Foundation, we're also aligning him with commercial partners that are like-minded, that share the same vision that he does, and that really wants to also help Sia amplify his brand throughout Africa and around the world. As, as a follower of Rugby Union, um, it, it, it was interesting to watch the Japan Rugby World Cup and, and, and see that, that iconic moment at the end with Sia, uh, Sia Khaleesi lifting the, the Web, Ellis, Web Ellis Cup. As, as a 28-year-old and, and, and reaching sort of like his pinnacle, uh, having reached the pinnacle of his, his, his sport in doing that, um, how, how does that relate to some of your other clients and that maybe you're able to build the brands from the bottom up? And what does that tell us about Sia's social influence, as you, as you, as you pointed out? Um, he's not only like um, the, uh, a black athlete in, in South Africa and, and the impact that he can have there, but also what, what influence can he have across wider populations, as you pointed out earlier, that may not... That, that may not know his success within South Africa, but his story can transcend the, the country into, into other territories. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Stephen, the idea of hope, the idea of overcoming challenges, the ability to inspire and to motivate, especially now, you know, is so important. And it, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in South Florida like I am today in, in America or you're in South Africa or if you're in the UK, that resonates, right? That resonates with, with all of us. His story of overcoming incredible challenges during his childhood, um, his story, including his mother and his grandmother and his father, um, you know, the fact that he was, you know, malnourished as, as a young teenager, the fact that he didn't wear shoes and didn't have socks, the fact that the small little things in life um, have always meant so much to him. Again, resonates with anybody that listens to his story around the world. That's why he has the impact that he has. He's so authentic and he's so real and he's so genuine. So, you know, quite frankly, our job's been quite easy. I I've never met uh, an individual like Sia Khaleesi. You know, you mentioned his age. Um, you know, he's a young man, but he's got an old soul. And he's been through so much. He's extraordinarily wise. He's extraordinarily thoughtful. 
and his experience and the challenges that he's overcome uh, in life. They motivate him and to make sure that children growing up in South Africa and around the world don't have to go through some of the challenges that he went through. But I can't underline the word hope um, more than I have with you today because I think that's at the center of everything that SIA does. It's, it's providing hope for people that they can be successful, that they can overcome challenges, that you know, if they have a dream, they can achieve the dream with hard work and passion and commitment and dedication. All the things that are so important to the world today and for children and teenagers and even adults to hear, that's what SIA Khaleesi stands for. And that's why this has just been an incredible privilege to work with him. I, I'd like to ask how important then is it to have an athlete or an individual that has a purpose in mind when you work to build their brand and, and vice versa, how important is it to build that brand to um, shine a spotlight on the purpose that they're trying to drive? I mean, some people might see brand building as a, uh, an opportunity to build their own name and 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 to, to, to and, and the commercial deals that tie in with that. But it sounds like with SIA, it's, it's very much grounded on, on this um, opportunity to, to spread his message and, and, and to, to help his, um, his national um, um, countrymen. So, I mean, what, 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 what's, the, what's the relationship there? So, you know, from our perspective, the purpose is the most important. Without that, you have nothing. You know, you think yeah. about the commercial marketplace. It's not about the sport, right? There are a lot of great rugby players. There are a lot of great football players or basketball players or American football players or baseball players. For that matter, uh, there, there are lots of great uh, cricketers around the world. But what separates them, especially through the eyes of a commercial, potential commercial partner, is the purpose, is the story, is the platform, and what that individual stands for. So that's why Sia Khaleesi was so important for Rock Nation to welcome uh, into its family. When you think about our roster, when you think about the artists and the athletes that, that we sign, all of them have their own unique purpose and story and platform. And that's what makes them unique. And quite frankly, that's what connects with consumers. That's what connects with individuals, right? Um, be, because that becomes the point of differentiation, the differentiator between one athlete and the next, the purpose, the story, the platform, who they are and what they believe in. I, I suppose it's, um, it, it's, it's hard to deny that he has a platform now for for his endeavors as a rugby player um before when sport was still around and we were able to enjoy it it, it it was remarkable to see um his story come to the forefront on the back of his success what was that was that the right moment for you to to sign a player like sia khaleesi from in within rugby union and what challenges aside from the fact that he is a he's he represents more than his sport what what challenges do you see in adapting to rugby and and I, I suppose community communicating a sport and an individual that isn't known globally. What 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 challenges do you, have you overcome in doing that? So you know, um, 
as, as I'm sure you, you would agree, she is a unique, um, a unique individual within rugby and has such a unique story. You know, before moving to the UK, I had never been to a rugby match. Um, I didn't know much about rugby. And, and so, you know, rugby doesn't have the profile of some of the bigger sports, you know, like European football and, and even the sports that, that we have here in America. And so I think initially, you know, the challenge for us was how do we take this individual from the world of rugby, um, a sport that, you know, has its pocket of, po of popularity in certain countries, but for the most part is not what I would call a global sport. And, and how do we elevate him to the level that we think he deserves, right? And it goes back to the purpose. It goes back to his platform. It goes back to his, his story. But initially there were, there were some concerns. And, and so we had to go back to the moment that we made the decision as to why we wanted to see Khaleesi as part of our family. And it had nothing to do with rugby. And so we had to kind of put that challenge to the side and look at Sia Khaleesi as a leader, as a motivator, as somebody that spoke to hope and overcame incredible challenges to get to the pinnacle of his career, right? And our thought process was that it could focus on that and tell that story and tell it consistently and in a meaningful way that ultimately we could help see achieve his goals and objectives. And that's exactly what we've done, right? Um, again, it, it, it had nothing to do with rugby and it wasn't about selling Sia Khaleesi as a rugby player. Mm -hmm. It was about selling Sia Khaleesi's story and making people understand why it was important to listen to that story. And we also felt that if people would listen, we could ultimately have the impact that Sia wanted to make. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I, on the back of that, Part of telling that story, I imagine the, the the book deal, as you mentioned, but also the the the, the documentary, the docu series, will will help deliver that story in in more territories. I mean, how important is it to to make sure that that's sold, those rights are sold to the right uh, the right platforms, and and to, to so that it the reach is uh, as 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 far as possible. Stephen, it's it's essential. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have a great story, right? Um, but in the case of his documentary, we have to have the right distributors and we need to make sure that that distribution has a global footprint. And so while we're shooting the documentary, we're talking to some of the biggest media companies in the world about the opportunity. And, and we're very um, optimistic that um, it will have global distribution and it will also continue to amplify his story. I would also mention because i think it's relevant to this conversation that we're working on another major project with sia that will also provide him with global visibility and that is an event that we're going to announce uh, within the next couple of weeks called united for africa mm. it's a virtual live stream uh, music and cultural experience that we are working on in conjunction with sia that will profile artists from around the world throughout Africa, as well as celebrities mm -hmm. to help raise money to feed those in need in Africa. 
and we will have global distribution, you know, for this event. Um, it currently is slated for June. And we believe that that in itself, although the goal is not to tell SIA's story, SIA will have significant visibility uh, during that event and people will get to know SIA in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so these are all opportunities that continue to help build the Khaleesi brand that continue to allow us to share his story with the rest of the world. And we're really, really excited about, you know, giving back to Africa and doing something for the motherland. And obviously super excited about the documentary and his future book. This is the Sports Pro Podcast. Um, likewise, it, it, it's profile is as as has increased during a um a time when he's not able to play his sport i mean the the pandemic was un, unforeseen and it, it has caused uh, uh had a big impact around uh, around the world outside of outside of rugby and sport generally but um how have you adapted that um especially when building a brand for for a player that is known for a sport in in like you say a small smaller community but what 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 opportunities may i say has that presented you in in um, building, building his brand further? Well, I mean, listen, it's been absolutely amazing. You know, Sia chose during this pandemic not to sit at home, to, you know, to really work on himself, to um, work on building the foundation. And he's dedicated himself to giving back to his community, you know, and, and, and it's been amazing to see. I, I, I quite frankly haven't seen anything like it around the world where someone has taken this opportunity to do so much good and how it's now um, impacted how people feel about him, right? And, you know, Sia has so much humility. He's one of the most humble people, you know, we've ever met. And his good work in the community is not about getting accolades and getting pats on the shoulder. It's about impacting lives. And the authenticity behind that uh, really comes through, right? So it's been, you know, an absolute incredible journey over the last 90 to 120 days and watching Sia do his work and then Sia allowing us at Rock Nation to amplify that work and to communicate that work to the rest of the world. As I mentioned, he's been profiled in, in global publications and newspapers for all the good work that he's doing. So even during this, this lockdown where he's not on the field and he's not getting the consistent you know, visibility through his sport, he's generating visibility and exposure through his great work, which quite frankly has had a bigger impact, a much bigger impact. Sure. I mean, it, I suppose more generally we're seeing the impact of the coronavirus on not only athletes, but, but, but sports and properties more generally. And, we've seen including South Africa rugby among some of the the industry's big sports um, properties that have had to take pay cuts and, and obviously adapt at this time. And what, I just want to ask you more generally, what, what impact that will have on athlete endorsement, do you think, in the future? And the work that you do on the in the periphery of their sport, does that become more important, do you feel? And, and do, do, are you seeing athletes adapt um, sort of, will you see athletes adapt to, to their branding and, and those deals post lockdown, do you think? Well, you know, I think this this uh, this lockdown 
has given athletes an opportunity to reflect mm -hmm. and to better understand the importance of life outside of sport, right? Because as we've learned, you know, Stephen, sport can be shut down, you know, immediately, right? And, and so, you know, many of our athletes have come to us and said, you know, help me with, you know, post-career planning. Talk to me about opportunities um, within my passion points, within my interest that I might be able to explore right now. We've got athletes that are taking courses online, you know, learning about finance, um, taking coaching classes online, you know, developing other skills because they understand that the life of a footballer or the life of any athlete relative to, you know, their overall lifespan is very short. Um, we've also uh, at Rock Nation, we've implemented mentoring programs and mentoring sessions with our owners. And we've given our athletes access to our owners who are some of the, 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 the most successful entrepreneurs in the world to learn about investing, to learn about how do you plan for life after sport? And what are the opportunities that some of our athletes may want to explore? So that's what you know, athletes are really focused on right now. In answer to your question regarding endorsements, I think that despite the pandemic, companies will, will always look to celebrities and athletes to partner and to endorse their product and or services. But I think the process is going to be more selective, right? We use this word authenticity a lot now, but the reality is this, in order to con connect with consumers, it has to be somebody that doesn't just resonate on the field or on the court or on the pitch. It has to be somebody like a Sia Khaleesi that can connect with the heart, that can connect with the mind, that can connect with the soul of an individual and really have a meaningful and make a meaningful impression on that individual. Those are the athletes that, that are going to have the opportunities moving forward. And so right now, giving back, showing that you care, showing that you understand what's going on in the world, um, and then doing something to give back is really, really important. I, I suppose just on that point, it, it's, it's important to give the, the athlete space to tell their story. Um, and we've seen brands in the past and, 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 and today do that more so, I suppose, that that's becoming more of a theme with um, brand activations around sports. So, I mean... What, what does that mean for Rock Nation? I understand that you're obviously working with athletes about their post careers at the moment, as well as their, their, their current, um, their, their, their current uh, playing careers. But what does that mean in divert? Is there an opportunity to, to work with other sports like rugby and, and, and athletes that do have that platform and that, 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 that voice that you can give a, that you can amplify, I suppose? No question. I mean, you know, I think, you know, our, our relationship with Sia has opened up our eyes to other opportunities. When Rock Nation initially got into sports, it was basketball, baseball, and American football. Mm -hmm. You know, now we're obviously involved in, in, in international football, soccer. We have a rugby player. And there are other athletes that we're looking at right now to hopefully bring into our family that um, are in the rugby space, that are in the cricket space, that, you know, are in the track and field space, and they all have incredible stories. They're all highly inspirational and motivational. And 
Those are the people we want to work with. Those are the types of people that brands want to work with. Those are the stories that we want to tell globally. And so we'll continue to expand. Um, you'll hear some great news you know, in the coming weeks and months regarding new signings as part of Rock Nation Sports International and our expansion throughout the world. Mm. But it won't just be footballers. It'll be athletes from all types of sports that have great stories, that have a great purpose, that want to expand their brand globally and want to work with a company like Rock Nation to accomplish all of their goals and objectives. So we're super excited about um, the, the opportunities that, that lie ahead. And I must say that Sia Khaleesi and this incredible relationship that we have with him has really opened up our eyes and, 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 and he's showing us the way, so to speak, mm -hmm. and has introduced us to friends of his and athletes around the world that, that he believes um, should be part of the Rock Nation family. Join the conversation with the SportsPro community. Follow us on Twitter at SportsPro. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media. And connect to SportsPro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Okay, that'll do it for another SportsPro podcast. Thanks again to Michael Yormark uh, and to Steve Impey. Thank you to Sam Karp. Cheers, Owen. Thanks for having me. And to Simon Chadwick. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back with you again for another couple of podcasts uh, over the course of the week. Uh, until then, bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 